This is the Ed Milet Show. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. I'm so thrilled to have this woman here today. I don't think I've ever enjoyed preparing for an interview more than I did this one because we had not met before yet. We have all these very mutual friends who have just, they just love her so much. I was telling her that before we went on. And then as I'm reading about her and learning, I'm falling more in love with her. So you would know her best probably from Shark Tank, which airs on Friday nights. She's got an awesome podcast called Business Unusual. And I think she's one of the most fascinating guests we've ever had on the show. So Barbara Corcoran, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. And all your compliments are a little bit premature, Ed. Why don't you wait a little bit on it? Well, at the end of the interview, if it's not very good, I'll amend my remarks, but I'm pretty sure, <laughs> okay, I'm pretty sure we're going to crush it. I'm reading about you. I got to confess, I've watched you on TV all these years and I'm thinking, she's got so much confidence and presence. This is like an Upper West Side, New York, raised with a silver spoon. That's what oh. I'm thinking, right? I, I just, yeah. and then I start to read and I'm like, oh my gosh, she's one of us. And she's had to overcome this tremendous adversity. She's one of 10 kids. She's New Jersey. She's, it's, you know, your dad wasn't the richest guy in the world by a mile. I was just fascinated by your upbringing and what you've turned your life into. Then I read, you couldn't read or write. Could you tell well, us? Eventually I did. Eventually. eventually. But as a child, you had dyslexia. I didn't know any of this about you. So let's just start out there just for a second, because I want everyone who sees this finished product, this you know, one of the top entrepreneurs, well-known ones on the planet. Take us all the way back to little girl Barbara. Well, after that introduction, I'm going to get myself a bottle of whiskey and start drinking at this time of the day so I could talk about it. No. You're two behind. I've already started. So go okay, ahead. Okay, good, good, good. But you know what? All of that kind of background stuff puts a lot of emphasis on money and what money brings. And I've learned as an adult, I was very lucky having that background of being one of 10 kids, you know, having worries all the time about how we would make do in our little house. You know, we had 10 kids in two bedrooms, boys room, girls room. My mother and father made those kids on the couch and we had one bathroom. But, you know, when you're that young and that's what you know, I never felt like I was short on anything because I had a mother and father who really loved us and cared for us. And I have met so many people where my hat's way off to them because they didn't even have that. And if you don't have that love when you're younger, it's a hard one to get over. Mm -hmm. So I was doused with love. Mm -hmm. And so I think of myself as a privileged child in, in, a, in a real way. If you can get rid of the usual stereotype that money makes difference. And you know, I found that in my life, not having money made the difference. It made me desire to have a better life. Not that that was such a bad life. It made me dream about maybe one day having a beach house or having a nice car that didn't have, you know, dents in it or whatever, like my dad's blue beauty that went on for 20 years, as I recall. It made me get lots of jobs. What an asset that was. I worked since the time I was 11, as did all my brothers and sisters. We all worked to contribute to the house. And I learned what I was good at, what I wasn't good at. And by the time I was 23 and started my business, you would swear I was 53 in experience in the, in the real world of living. I could go on and on, but those are meaningful ways that, that I got very, very lucky early. I feel like I have that too. Our backgrounds aren't that different. Tons of love. But mm. there's also things that happen when you're a child, I think. That's why I respect you. Not because you came from, you know, low income means to obviously you've done incredibly well. But I think sometimes when we're a kid, there's experiences where our either our parents or people that we admire around us kind of project their limitations onto us or say things that they don't know mm. might be limiting us long term and our identity or our self-confidence yes. that end up affecting us later. And for you, 
for me, I had an alcoholic dad who's ended up being sober and became my best friend, loving father. But there was always be careful. He would always, before we'd hang up the phone, be careful, be careful. You know, it was always this very cautious sort of thought process in our family. Mm-hmm. And for you in school, you were sort of labeled not so smart because of this reading and writing issue that you had with the dyslexia, right? Did Do you think mm-hmm. that ever impacted you? Did you have to consciously overcome that or did you just work your way through with all these jobs and just the hustle? You know, that that in my life, even to this day, is the largest challenge because you said you had an alcoholic dad when you were younger. I mean, if you had an alcoholic dad when you were 25, it's very different than when you ate and feel so vulnerable, 14, and wonder if you're going to grow and be like that guy. Mm-hmm. It can be the most painful and cutting experience in into the depth of your heart and your confidence and your shake of faith in life itself. They're big injuries, okay? So my big injury uh, wasn't the same as your own. My big injury was I was a dumb kid and made fun of. Mm. And I can feel that pain to today. You know, I, God forbid, somebody acts like a bully to me in business. I turn into that kid getting even. <laughs> I hate to say it, but it's like, I'll kill you. I'll kill you. You know, <laughs> it comes right. It's not just a theory or a dream I have, but it's like comes from all those old cuts around there, you know? So I think a choice of two ways you could go. Okay. You could like feel sorry for yourself, which is totally normal in your child. Who teaches you not to feel sorry for yourself? Most of us are raised by parents who are pretty good at feeling sorry for the situation, right? So we learn that. But who teaches you not to feel sorry for yourself and instead get even in your life? And what I've chosen to do, and it didn't come early, didn't come so fast. It came out of duress, being on my feet in circumstances that I didn't envision. But as a young 20-something-year-old, I got over it. And not totally over it, because I'm still an over-preparer. I'll prepare 50 hours for some what someone else will prepare 15 minutes for, because I don't want to ever be thought of as stupid again. I don't want to embarrass myself. I don't want anyone to think my IQ is not up there or whatever. I go through all this insecurity. So my great asset I got from that is I'm an over-preparer. And the other asset I got from that of growing up with that injury card, my biggest card, every kid's got something. Nobody grows up happy as could be, okay? But my big injury card on that is I'm out to prove to the world for my entire life that I am not stupid. Because I was written off as stupid, reinforced that I was stupid, and I'm still, I, of course I know I'm not stupid, but somewhere a piece of me still is scared about it. Mm. And that's what makes this bunny hop, you know? Yeah. So you can get your strength from your greatest weaknesses if you have the strength to realize it, you know, and find yeah. it somewhere. It's absolutely perfect. I relate to it. And I, it's one of my favorite things someone's ever said on the show, because- mm. You watch you, you have this presence, you have it now. Yet, I don't know, I, I, I meant what I said. I'm reading about you and I'm falling in love with this little girl and I'm watching, I could just picture this little girl not being told she wasn't the smartest one and she's just accomplished these amazing things in her life and to know that, you know, that happened for you and not to you. One of the worst things that could happen is being labeled with a limitation like that. Your whole life, Barbara, to some extent, maybe not the last, I haven't been with you, the last 20 years, it's all the winning and the, all that. But prior to that, I'm like, this woman takes a thousand dollar loan from a boyfriend, turns into a $5 billion, $5 billion with a B real estate business. But then I'm I'm picturing this scene. I just, I don't know, it made me emotional as I'm prepping. I'm, You're an old softy. Look at you, Ed. You're an old pushover softy type of guy. I, I'm, I, I'm I, disappointed I, in you. <laughs> I thought there was this, well, I think that, 
I think that I am a little bit. And the reason is, is that I, I love root, it. I'm kidding with you. I know I root for people, you know, I root for, I'm, I'm thinking, I don't know, maybe people knew this. I'm watching you on the show thinking, man, if everyone knew this woman's story, I want to have her on so badly because <laughs> it's remarkable. And I'm picturing you, you're like, I don't know, you're, you're in your early twenties. You're with this boyfriend who gives you the thousand dollar loan. I want everyone to hear this. Yeah. You're with your boyfriend. He gives you the thousand dollars. You guys have built a really good business. You're doing most of it. You're doing the work, but you built a pretty good business. There's a funny name to you, like Simone Lamone or something like that, right? Oh, wasn't that funny? It was Corcoran Simone, my name first. That was a battle. What was his name though? Wasn't it like Ramon? Oh, Ramon Simone. There we go. Ramon Simone. That was good. I remember (laughs) that was what I remembered. And I, and he comes home and just tell him what happens. You're cooking dinner for his kids. Right. Yeah. And what happens? And then what do you turn it into? Tell us that. Yeah. Well, of course, he came home to announce he was marrying my secretary. I just couldn't believe my eyes. I mean, my ears, rather, I guess is what I couldn't believe. But she was almost eight years younger than I. She was prettier than I. She had long blonde hair. I'd already made mine short. I got it in hindsight. But he told me I could take my time moving out. I took about a minute, grabbed my toothbrush, was out of there. You know, that was my family. I was raising those kids. That was our our family, we also built a 14-man shop renting apartments in the city. So we had the family at work together. We had the family at home. I thought we were mm, buds, you know, da-da for life, you know. But it took me a year of uh, a little bit feeling sorry for myself on the front end, I guess, because I thought, how could he do that to me? How could he take me by surprise? How could he? That's the pity, pity party that's so dangerous in life. But then I tolerated that for a year. She moved into my office. They giggled together. That's what broke my heart, the giggling. He liked her so much more than me. I was like the girl. (laughs) So I finally, one Friday, I just walked in and said, we're ending the business today, Ramon. Uh, We're going to chop the people in half. You pick the first person. I'll pick the second. I think that was the day I grew up. Wow. I remember having presents. Like I knew what we were doing that day. We divided that business, seven, seven people in probably eight minutes. We divided the bank accounts. The receivables, the whole thing, man, I think it was 76000 We chopped up. And then I announced to my people we were going to be in a new office on Monday. I didn't give them much time. Wow. Where are we going, they said. <laughs> and I said, it's a surprise. <laughs> you didn't know where you were going. Did you know? No. Oh, my gosh. But I went immediately up that afternoon on Friday to my landlord and asked if he had any other space because we always paid our rent on time. And he said, yes, I have the 11th floor above the 8th floor. Same space. I knew the space. And I rented it that day. I had phones installed on Saturday. When you could do that, you could call and get business phones installed the next day. And I bought 14 desks down on 42nd Street. And those guys ran them up to Midtown. And I had everything packed that weekend. And they came into a boat box with all their possessions on their desks. Welcome to the Corcoran Group. And that was the first day of Corcoran Group. And it happened two days after the last day of <laughs> Corcoran Simone, you know. Exactly. Uh, but, you know, the spirit of core in that business, the old business was a great spirit of core. They had a mom and a dad at home. Nobody knew we had marital problems. You know, all of a sudden, dad was gone. Mom was running it, you know. Wow. And it, 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 we worked with passion because I had so little money and also my security. I didn't know it then. But I realized on that Monday how insecure I felt without my boyfriend and partner. He was eight years older than me, a man of the world. I just, he found me in my little town of Edgewater, took me out of the diner, you know, told me I'd be a a good person in sales. Everything that was like mature and positive about me, first time hearing things positive about me in my life was from him. So I thought without him, I was really nothing. But even that was quickly turned into an asset because I was running scared. And you know Mm -hmm. how helpful it is when you run scared. 
you run hard. And so that couldn't have been a better start. And also, I forgot to mention, which I always like to mention, is that Friday when I left, he called me back because he was really shocked that I moved so fast. And he called me back and he said, oh, Barbara, I said, yes, Ray, I said. He said, I could call him Ray after a few years. I said, he said, you'll never succeed without me. I couldn't believe he said that to me. I would rather kill than let him see me not succeed. And I can't tell you, Ed, how many times that came into my head at the tough times when you're when all of us build businesses. You know, you go forward, you go back, you go forward, you go back. You think you're going to go out of business and you stay in business. You save your neck. Blah, blah. It goes on and on. But each of those worst moments, I would think about him laughing at me. It's terrible. He wasn't going to laugh at me. I doubt it. But I picture him go, <laughs> and I <laughs> shake me up. And I think of another new idea to try or something else to do, something, something. And I would always like just get me around that next corner. So I really had the gift of insult walking out that door. And I think if he had been uh, lovely and mature and said, you know what, you're phenomenal. You're going to do fine without me. And that was asking too much because I had just hit a broadside, as you know. I think I maybe wouldn't have stayed in business. I think it would have made the exit and the beginning a little bit more graceful versus vengeful. And I realize I'm very good insulted. Mm. I, I also discovered my strength, you know. Yeah, well, I think finding like the leverage that gets you going. I think sometimes even when we start to have some success, I mean, why, why do you keep climbing? You know, some of you that are achieving that are doing pretty well, too. It's can you still find the reasons? I, we were talking about the football helmet behind me from Brady before we went on. She's got an Emmy behind her. I have a football helmet from another guy. <laughs> and I, but someone like him that he's keeps finding. Yeah, it's, I, I would tomorrow. If the football play. player comes with the football, I'll yeah. do a swap. <laughs> I can't I can't throw that one in, unfortunately. I can throw in lunch with me. But but I got to tell you, I, I it's finding that leverage you get on yourself. It's hearing those things that you're you're not smart. You're you're going to fail. It's it's feeding it to you in a way that it energizes you and not taking those things to bury you in your life that I think a lot of entrepreneurs go the other direction. Like, ah, they were right. They were right. Every time mm-hmm. there's evidence that something negative happens rather than getting that bowing your spine, so to speak, and, and battling through. I also see this competition thing with you, it like shines through you. Mm-hmm. The thing I wanted to ask you about kind of as a little side road, because you're a woman. <laughs> and I one of the so. things that, I looked down, I was, yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm stating the obvious for this reason that you were one of the first women really, but women were already doing well in sales. And right now they dominate the sales space, yes, they do. but you, you were the woman owner also of a business. I just like you to speak to maybe women right now that are out there that are on the fence a little bit about, should I start a business? Should I move into ownership in my life? What, what does, do you think there's anything unique that a woman brings to the table? And do you feel like there's still a shortage of female entrepreneurs out there? Listen, being a female, for me anyway, when I was building my business was an asset, or at least I saw it that way, so it was. I was in a male-dominated business. Every shop was owned by men, the development field, the brokerage field, owned by men, usually second, third generation wealthy guys, okay? And there are big companies, so it seemed insurmountable, all right? But it was worked by women, and that wasn't lost on me. 90% of the sales force were female. We didn't even have the gay population yet as part of the New York uh, real estate scene, which today in brokerage is their very uh, tremendous force in brokerage. Okay, So we had it worked by women, owned by men. Okay, I could see the asset of that. I could see that if I was a girl telling the girls what to do, uh, why would they object to that? 
Would I have more empathy for them wanting to spend, go home with their kids, being spread thin, having four jobs when the husband had one? I understood that because I was of them. Okay. So I was able to build a spirit of core that I'm not saying couldn't be done by a man, but no one really did it because they weren't cut out of the same cloth. So they were, they were part of me. I was their mom. They were my kids. And that was my attitude and feeling from day one at that business. They were my kids and I would kill for them in the same way I would kill for my own kids today, my real kids. And that gives you a big calling card. Now, to your other aspect of your question, lest I forget it, you said, what do you say to a woman who's working like particularly in a man's field, pulling ahead? You have no idea what you're missing until you start your own firm. If you were to be an entrepreneur, no idea what you're missing when you're not free to make the walls your color, to choose the people, to make the policy yours, to decide what stick is in the sand, which mountain you're going to climb. When you're in charge, anyone, any individual in the world, put them in charge and you will see what they're made of. I remember my business, I was it running the company, but I knew where I wanted to go. I knew I would need top management eventually, even though I couldn't afford it and didn't have enough size to have other people running offices. But I remember from almost the get-go, I would go away for two days, say, don't call me. There are no cell phones. Don't call me. You're in charge. I would choose a salesperson. You're in charge. What do you mean I'm in charge? Whatever you decide is okay with me. Don't call me. Make any decisions you want. Mary's in charge. Everybody, Mary's in charge. What I discovered in the first 25, 35 people I had, I had potentially five or six phenomenal leaders, good managers. They didn't know they were managers, but I test drove them all the time throwing people in charge, throwing people in charge. So if you can take charge, not only of your office as a manager, you usually find find your gifts that way very often. But if you can go the extra step and be in charge of your destiny, what you do with your life, nine to five, every day you decide what power and what a delicious, delicious luxury it is in life mm-hmm. to be able to make your world what you want it to be. It's magic making, you know? So you can't get me to uh, too, too badly because I wish everybody could be entrepreneurs. I think there are certain traits that are dominant in entrepreneurs. If you don't have them, you're not going to make it. But I do believe if you are so inclined to have those traits, that ability, you're like missing so much by working for the next guy. I, I, I would rather kill myself than work for somebody. That's how I feel. That's how dedicated I am. You can see it on your face when you talk about it. You said wired earlier, and then you said these traits. And I, I think that's an important. I get asked this too, and I don't know that I answer it very well. So I'm curious what your answer is. What are some of those traits? I'm sitting here, I'm driving in my car, I'm on a treadmill, I'm watching this on YouTube, wherever I am listening to this. I'm like, you know, I want to be an entrepreneur or I am one, but I'm still not totally sure I should be. What are a couple of those traits in your mind that are just, you must have these or you shouldn't be one? Well, let me reassure you, Ed, you wouldn't have the success you have if you didn't. You would have been out of business, spit out, shoot up in just a few short years. So forget about that doubtful stuff. Leave that one behind for somebody else, okay? Mm-hmm. I, I believe front and foremost is competitiveness. Wow. I've invested in a lot of businesses. I have to tell you, there's not one really successful one where the principal isn't fiercely competitive, you know, and I don't mean competitive, like I want like uh, Saban and Jim of Cousin Maine Lobster, the equally competitive. It's not like I want to be the biggest lobster brand in America. Not that kind of competitive, but Luke's did what? <laughs> Luke's lobster? Oh, the shop? The horns come out. 
whether they wanted the shop there, whether they wanted the city there, whether they even had an interest, but their competitors there, whew, it's like a fast fuse. My most successful entrepreneurs are sickly competitive. I know for myself, I used to compete for things in my field that I had no interest in, just to show them that I could get it. That's sick. I needed a shrink. Not a job, right? But it's a wiring that you, you that growl in you, you know, that you want to be competitive. And uh, I think that's the number one trait. I think the number two trait, and if I only had an hour to two, and there's so many things you tap into when you're an entrepreneur, you, you've got all guns ablazing. But the second one, I would say, is that you have to be able to get back up fast. Everybody, you know, gets a hit and feels badly, and you have a lot of excuses to rest a bit and stay low. Or or make yourself right. You're la, da, da. He told me he was right, da, 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 whatever. But I think it's the ability to just like get in the habit of getting up. Get in the, I am such in the habit of getting up. Like I, I'm almost, not really, almost at the point now where somebody slaps me around, I don't feel it. <laughs> Because I'm so much in the habit, the good habit of getting back up. And interesting, if I could add, even though that wasn't your question, I'm going to throw it in here. Jeez. It's interesting how often I'm asked by parents how to build a child's confidence. If only they find something they're really engaged in. If only they're really, if only, you know, I believe parents can very much help children find their thing by getting them in the habit trying things, failing, and getting back up. And you can control that. Force your kid to go back out and try. Back up at bat. Try at that sport if you're not going to try at that sport. Or you can't do your homework. Try harder. Go do it again. I think that kind of building a habit of trying is where all children get their, get their uh, confidence from. And as dumb as I was in school, man, I was not allowed to coast. I was shoved out back and back and back and back and back. So I, I didn't think that lying down was an option. I got in the habit. And what an asset that was as an adult to have all that practice as a kid. I had an advantage, you see? Yeah. So that's, I think I answered your question. Maybe not. You ask it again. I think I dropped a piece of it on you or something. It's like so good. And it's interesting. I have to tell you, because I've asked that, I, I, I don't. I would like to have a different answer. I got asked that a couple months ago at a speaking engagement I have, and I said the word competition. Oh, I said the word competition. There you go. Because I, when I was done, though, I wasn't so sure I that that was the one thing. But I actually, I just, we just did this new podcast deal, and I, you know, I'm starting new businesses, and somebody asked, I asked the other day to my friend, I said, why am I still. You know, I'm like, I'm doing all these things. I said, what, what is, do I need a shrink? Like what you said. Like going, you do need a shrink. Yes. Don't get one. You won't be as profitable. That's what he said. Almost <laughs> verbatim. He said, he goes, because Eddie, listen, dude, here's the deal. You're competitive. You want to, you just, you want to, and also you're competitive with yourself. You want to see how much you can expand, how much you can contribute. And he said, you'd be dead just sitting around, man. Like I told him, I said, I, we're, I was, I live here on the ocean. I'm looking at the beach. I said, I have not put my feet on that sand and like, four weeks he goes you get out there you you find a way to do it but you're competitive and i actually enjoy in doing this more than i do just sitting there and it doesn't mean i don't like to rest it doesn't mean i don't like to you know it, you know recuperate but i like expanding i like contributing i like growing i want to compete and so i completely agree with your answer and this has been a trend with you so now i'm like okay how's she got on shark tank you have the exit in 2001 bunch of money and then you're, I think you think you're going to get the show. Yes, I have the show. They hired me. Yeah, I signed they, the contract. They hired you. And then it was like, mm, maybe not. You got it. This is amazing. I mean, think about this. What's happened to your brand, to your reach, to your influence. Mm. 
I mean, this one decision, we're one decision away from altering our life, right? One little competitive psycho streak in you. So tell them what happens. You get the show and then what? Then I get the call from the Mark Burnett's assistant and same woman who called me in the first place saying, I'm sorry, we've the show's changed its mind. They've hired another woman for the lone female seat. I couldn't believe my ears. You know, you have to remember at this point, I had already uh, bought Hollywood outfits, just going to sign autographs. Oh, I had done my movie going. <laughs> I had new new leather luggage. Wasn't going to be plastic in Hollywood. It's going to be You're leather awesome. matching luggage. Awesome. And so I, I was already there. I told my friends, I'm going to Hollywood. I'm going to Hollywood. I'm going to Hollywood. Uh, so I was mortified more than anything. I honestly, the first thought I had is what will my, what will my friends think? What will I explain? I hate to be that shallow, but I really thought of that. Mm. And then I hung up the phone. I couldn't believe it. I had to shake my head. But then I did the thing that's more important uh, than anything else in life, which I had learned to do, get back up. So I got back up and I typed out a very brief email to Mark Burnett, whom I hadn't met, and called the assistant to promise, she promised she would deliver it to him because I didn't think he'd read it, you know. Mm -hmm. And she said she'd walk it over and promise that he'd read it. And I told him, I considered him to be my lucky charm. All the best things in my life happened on the heels of rejection. When Sister Stella Marie told me I'd never learned to read or write, choose wrong, I learned. When the big boys in New York said I couldn't compete, I became the number one rival. When Donald Trump said I'd never see a penny of the $4 million commission, I collected every penny in federal court. I just went right like that. And I said, I'd like you to invite both women out to compete, and I expect to be on that plane on Tuesday. And what do you think happened? He he invited us both out. And thank God that was 13 years ago. Uh, to Pointing again to the power of not being so smart and not working so hard or all the rest of the stuff you have to do in life, but the power of getting back up, you know, just take another swing. By the way, Ed, what was shocking to me, well, I was, I was not so shocked I turned it around because I was used to turning things around. What was shocking to me is my uh, Clay, my producer, two weeks after that, we were on Shark Tank. He said to me, you know, we hired four times more business owners than we needed and we rejected three out of four. He said, and not one wrote an email. I was like, what? No one objected? Mm. So I got to see purely for writing that email, not because I earned it or I had good luck, but that email got me that seat. No doubt. That is just amazing story. And 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 by the way, not only did you respond, I was gonna give you a little everyone just a paragraph of the email. Not only did you respond, but you did it in such a way that just had a level of certainty. I think yes. certainty certainty. I was faking it. <laughs> I love that though. But see, but yeah. certainty is influence. This is yeah. she says. Mark, I understand you've asked another girl to dance instead of me. I <laughs> yeah, just, great opening line. Even I laughed at that one. <laughs> it's so good. It would get your attention. You would laugh at it. And he says, although I appreciate being reserved as a fallback, she says, I'm much more accustomed to coming in first. Oh. Yeah, that's another good line. I might say so again. <laughs> it is. It's so, it's just, I got to say, guys, I mean, these, these, there's moments that define our lives. And do yeah. we get back up? You know, do we compete again? You know, do we dig deep? And these things may seem sort of hokey. They're real world things that end up deciding whether or not you've had a pretty successful life or you're one of the most influential entrepreneurs on the spinning earth, which is what Barbara's become. Isn't that amazing? And it's just, it's just remarkable. Now, someone pitches on the show. I'm curious. 
what are you looking for? In other words, is it the is it the business model itself? Are you evaluating the on the jockey or the horse, or is it both? And how do you end up reaching a determination like this is at least one I may be in on? Or can they say one thing and you're like, I'm out? Is there something in particular you'll notice where you're like, I'm out? With yeah, these a few hot buttons. Uh, first of all, I really form a first impression before they ever say a word based on how they look. They're standing in front of the sharks, lower than us, they're intimidating, come through the doors, they're standing there. They are told not to talk until they're asked to start. So there's this long silence while they set, to set the camera shots up close in their face, very intimidating. Mm -hmm. And I watch how they handle the pressure, okay? So when somebody's falling apart, looking at the ground, shifting, don't can't handle that pressure, I just am out right away. I mean, I can't say I'm out, but I know I'm out. No matter what they say, that it would be digging out of a hole. I just can't really believe that this would be a strong business partner. Okay, That's one. Um, I do pay attention to the model to the degree that I say, hey, will enough people buy this service or product? Mm -hmm. Is there a need for it? And will enough people buy it? And if it seems, yeah, reasonable, I'm okay with the business model. All the details that we go into, the margins and blah, blah, blah. I'm honest to get, as a dyslexic, I'm asleep on the wheel. I'm often making a shopping list while it's going on because I can't <laughs> hang in there to pay attention, okay? But I already have formed my opinion on the very important piece. Hey, does it make sense when enough people buy it? Now I'm just watching at the person and just thinking to myself, could I picture them as my business partner? Do I like them? Do I trust them? And if I do, there's one last question. Do they have enough energy to make it to the finish line? Because I've never met a successful entrepreneur who didn't have a ton of energy. So if they don't have that energy, I don't. I think they're going to run out of gas. Now, I could be wrong. Who really knows? But I know in hiring people my whole life, thousands of people, when people don't have high energy, they're never great. Mm -hmm. So that's like a, a breathing test almost. So that's kind of the summation of it. And then you have to hang in there for another 45 minutes before you can say, I'm out and make up another reason why they're out. Because you don't want to say to everybody, I don't like your energy. You're not competitive. <laughs> you know, I don't like the way you look. You have to come up with something more businessy. And yeah. I spend the rest of my time trying to come up with something more businessy that makes sense for the show, you know? Businessy. I love that. I do that all the time on this show. Let me sound more businessy so I can just fit in. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This energy thing is interesting. It's the first thing that introduces you. Right when you walked in before we started, it was your energy that introduced you. And I say all the time to people, I say, I think that you're you're always making people feel something. So why not be aware of it and intentional oh, about it? I don't really think enough it. people are aware. You are always making someone else feel something all the time. Really? Yeah. And 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 you have a you have a more on a zoom and you can feel there's a presence and an energy, a I call it a higher vibration, whatever you want to call it. That or when you're around someone, you feel something about them that's attractive, that's magnetic, that's successful, that's or bad. It can go the other way too. It could certainly go the other way. <laughs> it can go the other way. Are there things you do in daily practice to protect your energy so that you have the reserves you need to perform at a high level? In other words, are there things you don't? I was reading something that maybe you don't even get email on your phone anymore, or you've you forwarded <laughs> most of those. Are there things in any of your routine? or your day-to-day -day stuff that you do to increase your energy or to protect it? I'm just curious. Well, I don't really think about it in, that, in exactly that terms, like protecting my energy or driving my energy. I'm a very terrible sleeper, so I don't get a lot of sleep, which is an issue because I can get very tired in the day. Mm -hmm. So how do I regurgitate my, ooh, 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 get myself going up for the day, you know? I'm good at that. I drink wine every night. That helps my energy. I swear to God, I have to admit it, not a lot of wine, a glass, sometimes a glass half 
Friends over, two glasses, no problem, right? <laughs> okay, so drinking wine chills me out because I run at a high pitch and I can't transition when I get home. I'm, I'm still up there and I would drive my husband crazy, I'm sure. So I chill myself out by by taking my drug of choice, which is white wine, mm. preferably Pinot Grigio, if it's not too sweet. Okay. So I, wish, I wish everyone could see what you're doing with your hands right now. Oh, they're up out of the screen. I'll keep them lower. Keep it's them lower. awesome. No, I love it. I love it. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. But the other thing I am such a believer in, I do work out. I work out three solid hours a week, which might not sound like a lot, but it's enough for my body type to keep me in great shape. And I believe when I've skipped those workouts, justifying because I just want to break, I have half the energy that I usually have. I believe that's what uh, keeps me ticking at a high pitch, just those three hours a week. And I'm religious about it from the day my son was born. He's 28. If I've missed 10 workouts in those 28 years, it's a lot. I'm religious about it. I'll do it on Zoom even if I'm not at home because I because I had was missing it when I was traveling. So yeah, working out, white wine is a formula and a new pair of crisp pajamas to slip into that oversized, really comfortable that you don't have to iron, you just slip on and keep washing again and again so they're always fresh. Those are my components. I love it. Are you uh, willing to tell me your success rate roughly on the show? And oh, sure. if you have, what? so what's the success rate and do they have something in common? So if I'm an entrepreneur listening to this, you know, I, I want success leads clues, right? Is there something that the successful ones have in common or is it all for different reasons? Timing, market, scaling, product quality? Uh, no, I, I can address only my own success rate because as sharks, we all lie to each other. You said a mark to Kevin, hey, how did you do with that guy with that silly dog-shaped eraser that you spent $150,000 on? And they'll say, oh, we're burning it up. We're burning it up. That's what guys do. We're burning it up. It's bigger than a, bigger than a giraffe, right? <laughs> okay. I always go to this second man and say, how do they do with that eraser? Bomb. You know, <laughs> I get the truth out of who works for the top guy. You know? right. awesome. So my truth is, if I said to you I was successful with half of the companies, at least half now, wouldn't that be amazing? But it's not true. <laughs> I'm successful in one out of 10, one out of 12, maybe in a good year. All right. And my success rate in the last four or five years has been much better than that. I should really figure it out, but maybe I don't want to know the truth. I would think around 20%. But in the first few years on Shark Tank, I succeeded at nothing. It was a joke because what I was doing then is I was trying to understand the businesses and make good rational decisions. What I did after year four, I started trusting my gut, just going for my gut on it. And your gut, I don't care who you are, unless you have such bad judgment, your gut is a truth teller. So I listened to my gut real, and I don't, I don't second guess me. So I don't know if that's a good average, how it compares with the other sharks. I'll never know because in each other's eyes and our producer's eyes, we're amazing. You know, <laughs> yeah. But I guess I don't know if that's better than the norm, not the norm. What do they have in common? I have a definite leaning toward and not even intentionally. But when I look at my successful companies, all of them are partnerships except for one. I get two for the price of one. And each of the partners have opposite skill sets to each other. So I get a solid pack, you know, a powerhouse there. And they all then share the same traits we talked about earlier. They're all competitive. They're also all aggressive. They all have people smarts. They sure can choose people. They build good teams around them. That's intuitive. They make the mistakes the first few people in important positions, but then they get over it and they don't ever do it again, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you have yeah, big blind spots in business still, Barbara? All this experience you built 
you know, this remarkable real estate company, you had the, you know, your, all the success you've had on the show, 10% to me is still a really good, it's better than mine. My angel investing certainly isn't 10%. So you're doing better than I am. Are there blind spots you still have that you're aware of? Does your heart lead too much sometimes? Is that, a, I mean, I'm just, just you seem like such a caring, kind person. Do you, do you have anything you think I, still in business? I can be a little cruel. Uh, I can be a little cruel. You mean with my entrepreneurs? Yeah or wrong or cruel certainly i have quite a few that i keep repeating and then i try to nail it away and and sometimes i can sometimes i can't one of the things i tend to do is if i don't like someone their personality i think them less smart which is not really fair there are a lot of smart people out there with flat personalities smart in lots of ways but for me to swing and dance with someone i have to have fun and like them or i don't want to invest myself because i'm bored you know, so that's definitely a blind spot. You get a guy who's a computer, uh, a genius, and he talks monotone. I'm, I was actually thinking of one entrepreneur I was on conference call with yesterday. Monotone. I almost wanted to say before the end of the call, have you ever thought of being an accountant versus an entrepreneur? <laughs> that's how flat he was. And he approaches everything like an accountant. I don't I don't believe the man will succeed in the end. But but I tend to not give people like that a chance. I'm impatient. Uh, if someone's long-winded, I tend to write them off, which is terrible because I'm long-winded, but they got to cut to the chase up front and then I'll listen to them for an hour. But if they don't cut to the chase up front, I'm ready to chop their head off right away. So I'm impatient, you know, and I don't like people who are too rich, honestly, which is a shame because I have affluent children now by default. Okay. But when I get rich kids on the set and they've already done a round of funding with their family and friends and they are, you know, a new model now, or they've shifted this way. I'm like, what happened to the money you lost for your mother? You know, I'm intolerant of that. And yet we get, I'd say a quarter of all the entrepreneurs on Shark Tank are rich kids. I never buy those rich kids. I never buy into them because I don't like them for being rich. Isn't that terrible? It's not their fault. It's so interesting. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. That yeah. is so interesting. I, I have the same thing. They have a higher threshold for me to get them to believe them. And they have a higher mm -hmm. threshold for me to respect them. Yes. And so it's interesting because, you know, you're around a lot of rich people now. I am around some as well because of some of the you know financial success I've had. And it's an odd dynamic that when I meet somebody who comes from money, not has made it, mm -hmm. making it is one thing, comes yeah. from it for me is one of these biases that somewhere got in there with me at some point when I was a kid or something where it's like, they just got to work a lot harder to get my respect and my trust than someone who doesn't come from that. It's a very, I'm wondering why I do it. I just, you know I why? Because it's foreign to you because it wasn't who you knew who worked by your side. So yeah. it's, it's, you know, there's an implication, which I hate myself for that. Someone like that is almost cheating to get ahead. They can't help being rich that the father right. happened to know the right guy to introduce them to, but right. But it's a curse. I mean, it's so hard, you know, for affluent children to really do better than their parent who made a bundle, impress the parent on their own right. Not to, even it's even hard not to join the family business. It's tough on a rich kid to succeed, I think, really to feel it in themselves than it is for a poor kid. You don't have to quite accomplish as much. And you know you did it on your own. What a gift that is, right? Yeah, I think so. I think maybe we're just talking about this out loud. I think part of it is, you know, in life, you're moving towards something. You've got a dream and a vision. But to your point earlier, there's a power to moving away from something, too, or mm -hmm. wanting to change conditions or change how we feel, even if we come from a loving family. I think there's there's a power to that. I'm really surprised that you said it. Now, one thing I noticed about you that I admire in all people 
And I'd like you to speak to this. And maybe no one's ever asked you this before. People that I like that are successful or just that I like being around. Success to me just means they are great at what they do. So my middle sister, for example, is a school teacher. She's blind. She was born with diabetes, so she can no longer drive. She can see a little bit, but but became a school teacher. You said is that what you said? It was really an interesting thing because even grading homework, you know, communicating to the class, and she's one of the best. You know, she's amazing. I'm sure if she wanted to be there, she is. Yep, she is, and she's one of the most successful people that I've ever met because she's using her giftedness and her. Her, her dream and her life, and she's living it. So she, to me, my sister's mega successful in our family, and so are my other ones, but she's a, she's a great example of that. People that I know that are successful have a higher level, it seems to me, of self-awareness. You seem to be very self-aware. Like, you know, I can be cruel. I can judge this. I, I'm competitive. Do you think that that's an element that's, that's, do you agree with me on that, that self-awareness is important as an entrepreneur? And also just in life, being aware of who you are, your deficiencies, your strengths, and then playing to them. Well, you know, if, if the truth be known, self-awareness is a, another category of competitiveness for me anyway. I mean, it's not that I don't want to be self-aware or I don't want to know what someone thinks or how they feel. I'm very, very in touch with feelings, sometimes too much so. I'm aware of that about myself. I've got tremendous empathy. I built my business on empathy and marketing. That's it. I wasn't gifted at anything else. But that being said, I want to be self-aware and see how this person's reacting, what they might be feeling, because also I want to get ahead. And you can't get ahead on your own. You're getting ahead through the people you choose to be your team. So part of it's self-serving too. You know, when I'm self-aware, I get the most out of it, just like the person that I'm treating much better or reading much better or giving the opportunity faster because I'm much more tuned in. But in the end, I get the greatest benefit of that. You know, I'm aware of that. So there's a great incentive if you like to compete and win your contest, whoever you're competing with, to be more self-aware. Because you know what you know and I know, you can't you can't get ahead working with people if you don't have the capacity to walk in someone's shoes. Mm. They're going to see right through you when you say, I understand how you feel about working those extra hours, Sally, and not getting a raise in nine months. Mm. They're going to see through that crap, you know. Yeah. But if you can get in their shoes and explain it in an entirely different way that's truthful, they're going to hear the truth, too. And that's a, an important piece of managing people to be able to walk in their shoes and speak from the truth. Yeah. So, yeah, I think self-awareness is, especially if you're building your own business, in anything, forget it, as a parent, in anything, it's it's a key card. Yeah. I do too. Are, is it worth it? I'm curious. I, I ask, you know, I, people ask me that often. I'm just curious, like your real answer, you know, all the work, all the sacrifice, the, mm. all the hours you've put in in your life, all the growing, all the setbacks, all the difficult meetings, all the nights before a big meeting, you're talking about not sleeping, the anxieties, all the, it's the, it's the, it's the harder road to some extent in life. It's the, I'm not going to cool it in my life, life, right? That's what you've lived and are living. You, and most people that listen to my show are on that path. They're, I'm not going to cool it in my life, life, so to speak. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious, is it, is it worth it? Of course it's worth it. If you didn't live life that way, it's like buying a sheet without color. The more you can push into things, the more you try, the more obstacles. I'm not saying that obstacles are fun because when you're going through them, you hate them. 
right? You don't even know if you're coming out the other side. But the more you do that, it's like, you know, you, you have this colorful sheet that you're laying down in every night. Oh my God, look, I know I had this bunch of purple flowers. Oh, you, your life is so rich. And I don't know, I'm not one of these people that think I'm going to come back as a grasshopper or a person or anything. But if it is the only life you have, I mean, why wouldn't it be worth it? It's your one shot. That's it. And you don't know it could end tomorrow. So that puts an urgency on living uh, that's palatable because it could be your last day. How do you really know? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's worth it. Oh, by space. What's not worth it is knowing what you might grab or do for yourself, but rationalizing why it's not worth why that's not worth it. Because what that does, it eats away at you. And it eats at away at your joy of self and your pride of self. Because even if no one else knew you're coward and shied away, you know you did. And you know what? When you're trying everything, guns are blazing all the time, even if you're going to fail at three out of four, I find I am always proud of myself when I've tried, even if it's fall on my face, embarrass myself, I go, well, at least I tried. And I know that sounds like a cliche, but I really do feel pride of me having tried. You know, and I, I do believe you don't have to win to get that satisfaction. You get your satisfaction again out of, out of just kind of making a habit of always, always trying your best, always trying your best because you're proud of yourself. You know? yeah. Self-pride is such an important piece of happiness. I knew I was going to enjoy talking to you, but this is awesome. Thank you, by the way. I got two more for you. I'm enjoying this so much. I got to tell you, like, I'm thinking I can't wait for my daughter and son to hear this. You know, I can't wait for They're not going to listen. If you recommend it. They'll never listen. Forget it. They're kids. You be surprised. I, they, when there's something really special on the show, I always send it to them. And this one's being sent to them for sure. You did a funeral for like a mock funeral for your birthday. What was that? And why did you do it? Hey, it was for my best friends. Okay. They came up with the idea and someone snitched that they were going to throw me a surprise party because I'm hard to surprise. So they were planning their surprise party and I decided I'm going to surprise them. <laughs> So when they walked in, they thought I was going to come into the party later. They were all there with their chair. When is she coming? She's at JFK. She's on her way in. We set everything up like a dream. And I live in a duplex. So they were on the top floor all drinking, waiting for me. And then my dear brother T said, let's all go downstairs so she doesn't see us. They came down the stairs, walked into the living room. I had emptied out the entire apartment and I set it up as a funeral parlor. And they walked in to see me dead in a coffin. My God. People believed I was dead at first. <gasps> you could hear a pin drop as people, it was, it was like a funeral. They walked in so silently. And then after they all gave, I had a rabbi giving respects. I had a Monsignor, their fake friends, giving respects, you know, giving a speech. Anybody want to say anything? Everybody said different things while I laid there dead. And I got to hear what everybody was going to say about me when I'm dead. And then I popped up and we started the dance party and I was alive. Wow. <laughs> it was great. But I never thought anybody was going to know about it other than my close friends. But somehow it's taken a life of its own. I'm always asked about my funeral. I can never die now again. <laughs> that's one of the most bananas stories literally of all time. Like for It was fun. That is crazy. I might do that, actually. I'm not going to do it on any new birthday, but that's something actually I might do. Oh, I'd love you by surprise, do not announce it. It, cool, it ruins all. You have to see your friends faces oh i would wonder what they would say i mean by the way that's an interesting question for everybody to ask themselves if it was your funeral today what would people say about you what would your life what'd your life end up like you who know, cares it, you're dead who cares what they'd say speaking of that last <laughs> question last question 
Thank you again, by the way. By the way, give out the phone number for your podcast. So I don't want to forget. Ah, thank you for reminding me. I was supposed to do that. Okay. It's 888-BARBARA. You phone in your question. I answer as many as I can on my podcast. The more difficult the question, the more I like it because it pertains to more people. 888-BARBARA. Business Unusual podcast, guys. All right. Last question. This is a tough one. I don't know if you ever been Thank you for that, before. by the way. Of course. This is a tough one. Yeah. Is there something? I doubted that- it. I doubt that it. Okay. Well, you crushed every one of them. I got to get one in there. So what do you, is there something that you used to believe strongly about life and or business that you've changed your mind about? Did you just look at very differently than you did? I, I, and that's not an easy question, but there's got to be something over this incredible life experience that you've had, that you continue to have, that you believed at one time, life or business, that you go, you know what? I don't believe that anymore. This is, this is what I think now. Uh, There are so many things, honestly, or you're not living if you're not learning. But the first thing that popped in my head, so I'll use it because that came in my head, is I used to believe that it must be amazing to have money for whatever you want in life. The freedom to have money to buy the beach house, to go on a vacation and go there, to go there. I used to believe the carefreeness of having wealth. What I've learned through living life, and I'm not giving back my money, I'm not complaining about it, of course. But what I have learned in life coming from the background and having lived poor, middle class and very rich, I've learned that the more money you have, the more complicated life is. It complicates friendships, motivations, how people treat you. It gives you fame and accolades for things you don't deserve. It changes your relationship with your children. It it complicates it. It brings in lawsuits, estate planning, accountants. Life gets very complicated the more money you have. And again, I say again, I'm not giving the money back. I handle my complications. But I saw money as, wow, if I won the lottery, I would say to someone now winning the lottery, watch out. (laughs) You might find your best days are behind you, not in front of you. And when I think of my happiest moments in life from skip your childhood, okay, that's put upon you. So you have no... As a young adult through now, my happiest moments are my silly moments that I shared with a friend that brought so much joy to both of us that we giggled. And you do less giggling the more money you have. I know that sounds weird, but it's true. You go to more sophisticated parties, more sophisticated things. You're not going to jump in the trunk of a car until you get to the beachfront, you know? Mm -hmm. So the silliness is where all the joy is at. So I try to manufacture that in my life as best I can, but it's easy to do when you're poor. It is. Wow. That might explain why so many of my friends aren't, I've, I've kept so many people around me that their success wasn't financial because they keep me silly they keep me goofy you know so you can trust them you know who they knew who you were then they know who you are now and they're true friends most of my closest friends are old friends it's not that i haven't made new friends but my closest friends my treasured friends are my old friends you know thank you for the wisdom today this was awesome like i knew it would be great everybody told me it would be great but you're easy to talk to it really yeah, thank you. And so are you. And I enjoy it. I feel like this is the beginning of a new friendship. So thank you for being here today, Barbara Corcoran. Enjoyed thank it so Thank you, much. my friend, Ed. My Ed. dad's name, my brother's name. I love Ed. the name, Ed. So, hey, everybody. I know you enjoyed today's show. We bring you the most fascinating, successful, and insightful people on the planet. Barbara is absolutely at the top of that list. So please share today's show and continue to max out your lives. God bless you. And call me at 888-BARBARA. I'm getting good at promotion. Good. Get it in there. All right, guys. God bless you. Max out. Love you. Bye-bye. This is The Ed Milet Show.